The parasha is Bishalach. Parasha Bishalach and uh, the parasha Bishalach is Shmos Ve'era Bo Bishalach are a kind of introduction to the parasha Yitra. And they all are about what it takes, what Bnei Yisrael had to become in order to receive the Torah. And that's the topic. Like, what did Bnei Yisrael have to achieve in order to receive the Torah? Or what sort of personality did they have to develop? I mean, it wasn't free. You had to do something. You had to be worthy of it. So the parashiyot, those parashiyot, are the parashiyot that precede the parasha of Torah, which is Yitro. Parasha Matan Torah, which is Yitro. And the high point, the high point of the parashas, the high point is the posse that you all know. Vayaminu Bashem uve Moshe Abdo. That's the high point. Vayaminu Bashem uve Moshe Abdo. Now this was not an easy achievement. This is not an easy achievement because we know if you look at the sheet uh, already in Perik Dalit in Shmos. Vayamein ha'am. Right, Vayamein ha'am, which has something to do with Emunah, even though it's a strange form. Vayamein ha'am, Vayishmu ki pakad Hashem et b'nei Yisrael b'chira'ah et onyam vayikdu vayishtachavu. They bowed down. We saw this pasuk already. Somehow, people at the beginning wanted to believe Moshe Rabbeinu. They wanted to believe that they were going to be redeemed. But it didn't seem to be working out that way. Nevertheless, in Perik Yudalid, the pasuk says, Yisrael Hashem this was the high point. Something happened. Something happened. That's the faith that Bnei Yisrael had in something. Like what were they ma'aminim in? What was it that they believed that they did not believe before? Well, I mean, as we've spoken, the Aseret HaMakot in Mitzrayim, Whatever their purpose was for the Egyptians, I mean, why, uh, why God couldn't just give them one whack and get everybody out of Mitzrayim? There is no doubt, at least the Mephoshim see it this way, the Ramban especially, that the long Ramban at the end of the Parsha of Bo, the Ramban says it was for B'nai Yisrael that there were all of these makot. There was some educational aspect and what was the issue with the Makot? The issue of the Makot, which was really never solved. The issue of the Makot that was never solved was, does God have ultimate power? Or is this the end? Meaning, God brought down Svardim. So that's something. But is that the end? Can God do worse than that, or stronger than that, or better than that? And that was always a question, and that the Egyptians were never convinced of. 
After Bnei Yisrael left Mitzrayim, the Egyptians chased after them until Yamsuf. When they saw that Yamsuf uh, divided, split, that the waters were like a like a a, 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 like a wall. So that should have done it. That should have done it. I mean, if you saw the, the something that was contra- that con- contradicted your notion of nature, so you would be minimally surprised. But the Egyptians said, that's it. God won't be able to do, to bring it down upon us. And they chased the Jews into the, into the bed, bed of the Dead Sea. Now that was absolutely crazy, what the Egyptians did. I mean, so where did they get the strength, the fortitude to do such a crazy thing? Obviously, I mean, not obviously, but it seems to me that the Egyptians as a community felt that this must be the end. The most difficult thing for God to do was done. And there's nothing else that could happen. And if we just continue to march after B'nai Yisrael, we will win. I mean, I don't imagine that they ran into the Red Sea in order to be killed, that they wanted to die. It wasn't their death wish. It was the fact that they thought that God could not continue the battle. That this was the end. And so they ran into the Dead Sea. So before they went into the Dead Sea, the Pesach says, And what was the faith that they were asked to develop? The faith that they were asked to develop, to my mind, is... And that's the first half of the book of Shemot. The faith that they were asked to develop is faith in the promise. God promises, it'll happen. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. I mean, the, the fact that there is a God, that was not an issue at the time of, of uh, the Torah. There's no, no issue. Everybody believed in God in one way or the other. Even idolaters who believed in a multiplicity of gods believed in God, somehow. I mean, they saw it in their own way. But atheism outside of Greece was not so popular. It wasn't the way of the world. Even in Greece, it wasn't so popular. Even in Greece. I mean, you know, you might be able to say, uh, like, uh, try to figure out what Socrates thought about it, but... Besides Socrates, there were guys who sold tomatoes in the, in the market in Athens. And they all believed in some form of God, gods, uh, etc. So that was not an issue. That was not an issue, even though, as you know, the Ramban says, and others follow suit, that Yitziat Mitzrayim is in turn a proof that God created the world. I don't know if it's a good proof or not. You know, the Ramban says that since God had dominion on the created world, like he could do anything with that world, that somehow indicates that he created the world. That's, how, that's what dominion means. I don't know about that. I'm not interested in arguing the case. I just point out, I just point out that 
before the Ramban. Yitziat Mitzrayim proved to Bnei Yisrael that God created the world and therefore God had dominion in the world. But that's not the Vayaminu Bashem Uva Moshe Avdo. That's not what those words refer to. What those words refer to is the promise. That no matter how far away the promise seems to be, it will be affected by HaKadosh Baruch That's all. That's what Emunah is. So the people who left Mitzrayim, the people who left Mitzrayim, in order to make them worthy of accepting the Torah, they had to have this Emunah. That is Emunah. If you could have it coming out of slavery, which is kind of the most depressing state that you could be in, the state which sort of indicates that it's not going to happen, nothing's going to happen, nothing is going to change, so if you could have that faith while, while being enslaved in Egypt, and that's the purpose of the Makot, then uh, you fulfill the prerequisite requirement to become uh, recipients of the Torah. And that's why, I mean, and only the Jews, or what turned out to be the Jewish people later on in history, were given this kind of preparatory course in receiving the Torah, right? It was generated, of course, by Avraham Avinu, who understood something without taking the preparatory course. He, and that was passed on to Yitzchak, and then to Yaakov, and then to the brothers. But the brothers now had to kind of re-understand as a nation, as a community, as a group. They had to understand that that was the relationship to God, of God to the world, that a promise is never abrogated. That's what they had to understand. That's what they had to believe. And they did. That's what they believed. Rashi says, <coughs> Rashi says about this pasuk that we just read, Ayad HaGdola. So, you know, when you read those words, there's an issue of uh, like anthropomorphism, which means um, can you make God into a person? Can you personalize, personalize God, right? So uh, why would the Pasuk say Yad Hagdola, which makes it sound as though God has, a, has an arm? Now we, of course, being in this matter, I think, more or less students of the Rambam, we, and the Rambam is the one who taught us that you can make anything into a metaphor. But when you make Yad HaGdola into a metaphor, it means there is no Yad. And if there is one, it's not Gdola. It's the whole thing. It just means something else. It means power. It means power, and that's what Rashi says. Et HaGvura HaGdola the great power exhibited by uh, the arm of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, right? There's no arm, there's only power. There's yes. only... Who? Rashi? It would be fine if he said Yeah, no, but he's explaining it in the Pasuk. Like how are you supposed to read the pasuk that it's about the power of God, and that's you know came from Yadoshel Akharach Bochu, which I guess for Rashi doesn't mean that there was really a yad. It just means that's how the pasuk represents the idea of power, right? Vaharbe l'shonot of lim al l'shon yad, 
And there are many different ways of describing Yad. That, you know, you can use it for all kinds of purposes. Vikulan Lishon Yad Mamash Heim. Right? And they all are literal representations of the word Yad. Ramefar Shon Yitakena Lashon Achar Inyan Hadibur. And whoever comes to explain the Pasuk, Yitakein Halashon, he'll fix it up. So you're not talking about a Yad, right? Achar Inyan Hadibur, but you, you connect it to whatever the topic that you're talking about, whatever topic you're talking about is, which we would say it's a metaphor. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean what it says. That's always an annoyance. That was one of the great achievements of the Kabbalists. <laughs> the Kabbalists, the Kabbalists said, okay, metaphor, shmetaphor, but the choice of metaphor must also be meaningful. In other words, the Torah could have said, God's arm. It could have also said, God's hammer, or God's arrow, or God's sword. So that even if it's a metaphor, you have to explain why this metaphor is the most appropriate in this particular place. And the Kabbalists in their parshanut, in their exegesis, were very, very, uh, um, uh, would notice this very much, were very, very aware of this point. And they said, even if you accept the Rambam's understanding, they didn't say that, I'm saying that, even if you accept the Rambam's understanding that everything might be a metaphor, still you have to explain something. You have to say something. Why is it you want to say God's power? You said Yad Hagdola. And you didn't say Cherev HaKadosh Baruch right? You could have said that. You could say all kinds of things to make a metaphor. So they said that the metaphor is not only interesting for what it represents, but it's also interesting to find out why it was used. Why the description of God's power, we say Yad Gedola, that's what, that's what Rashi says. Okay? Now, uh, I just want to, uh, there's a pasuk, we'll, we'll leave the Ramban for a, for a time. The Pasuk says, Bishloch Hashem etchem ikadesh barnea leymor, alo arashu et 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 and you didn't believe that he could really take you into Eretz Kedah. This is a, an explanation of the Chet HaMaraglim, right? You remember? Chet HaMaraglim. The question is, like, what was the Chet? What was the Chet? If, if God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, okay, send them. Send the Maraglim. The Maraglim went, and they checked out the land, and they came back, and they said, <coughs> look, the cities are big, the... the uh, the fortifications are strong, the armies are ready, uh, it'll be a tough fight. That's what they said. So where's the chait exactly? And so the Pasuk says what the chait is. The chait mantim lo. Tamru et You denied the voice of God. God told you to go and you said, we'll think about it. And then, lo. Lo shumatem bikolo. Lo shumatem bikolo. What happened? 
What was it that Bnei Yisrael, what did they feel? What did Bnei Yisrael feel? What was the issue that had come up in their world? So it seems to me, it seems to me that uh, on some level, Matan Torah failed. In other words, Matan Torah was successful in enabling B'nai Yisrael to conceive of the idea that there would be a Torah given to them. But it was not enough for them to understand that after Matan Torah, the promise will be intact no matter what. And that's why they built the golden calf. Whatever the golden calf was, I mean, that's a different question, but let's say it, it wasn't good. It wasn't positive. It wasn't something that fit in with the Torah, right? The Aseret HaDib wrote. All of that was, all that was problematic. So that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to them, go, they, they were not certain. I mean, a lot of people were killed as a result of the building of the golden calf. The relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu had been, well, kind of uh, affected adversely affected there was something wrong there was something wrong with the relationship I mean God had killed a lot of Jews so to speak because of what they had done with, uh, with the golden calf um, and so they didn't want to go they didn't want to go to Eretz Yisrael so they said well how can we not go to Eretz Yisrael well we'll send Merah Lim and, and the whole point of Miraglim was, of course, the Miraglim told the truth. They told the truth about what was going on in Eretz Yisrael. But the issue became between B'nai Yisrael and, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, had to do with the promise, didn't it? I mean, God said to them, you'll go to Eretz Yisrael, you'll conquer it. So that once God has made that promise, it doesn't really matter what the people in Eretz Yisrael are like. I mean, what difference does it make? They can be big, they can be strong, they can have high walls or low walls. After all, when they came into Eretz Yisrael, they ran around Yericho. The walls came tumbling down, as I've heard. And so if the walls came tumbling down, what difference does it make if they were well fortified or if they had an army? Or, I mean, the whole thing doesn't make any difference. So what was it that B'nai, that B'nai Yisrael, why were they crying in their tents when the Miraglim came back to, uh, came back to the camp? They were crying because they did not believe that the promise was intact. But they thought they would have to fight. And if they would have to fight, they would conceivably lose. And that they didn't want to do. It was all, all kind of a reasonable conversation that they had with the Muraglim. They said to the Muraglim, you know, it's like, uh, can you imagine the, uh, uh, the uh, advisors of that guy in North Korea, the guy, he says, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, you know, like we have, the whole world is populated by cowboys today. So the guy in North Korea says, I'll do it, I'll push the button. So the guy sitting around him say, yeah, but you better go and hide in China someplace because it's over. I mean, there's a reasonableness someplace along the line, I think, I imagine. I can't imagine anything else. So somebody knows that you can't beat America. Somebody in North Korea. I mean, there's one person who's still alive who knows that you can't, you can't do it. So 
uh, that's it. You know, you know, you can't do it. So that's what happened to Bnei Yisrael. What, what did Hakadosh Baruch Hu after Bnei Yisrael? That you should trust the promise. What was the promise? It doesn't matter what they have in the Canaan. It doesn't matter what the armies are like and what the walls are like and what the buildings are like and what the cities are like. None of that makes any difference. The only thing that matters is the promise. Bnei Yisrael, for some reason, after Matan Torah, had lost a kind of, they lost the edge of their belief in the promise, which was the prerequisite sine qua non to accepting the Torah. You have to have, you have to have that promise. That's the Vayaminu Bashem of Moshe Abdo. They believed in God, but they believed what Moshe Rabbeinu told them about God was actually accurate and true. Accurate and true. The, the Miraglim, right? So that's what the Pesach says. Lo he'emantem. Lo he'emantem lo. You didn't believe. What didn't you believe? What didn't Bnei Yisrael believe? I mean, they knew about God. Moshe Rabbeinu was talking to God and God was talking to Moshe Rabbeinu and that was not the issue. The issue was always the promise. Is that going to be fulfilled right now? And so when the Miraglim came back, I'm saying, I'm repeating myself, but I like that. I mean, I like to repeat the good lines. When the Miraglim came back, what was the question and answer about? What is the reality? How many soldiers do they have? How many bombs do they have? How many, how many submarines do they have? That was the issue. There was no issue about God. They didn't, that wasn't the, the point. They were acting as though, they were acting as though God was not involved. That there was a promise, but that promise, that promise was, well, we don't know what's going to be. The whole story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the crucial role that the Egyptians played in Yitziat Mitzrayim was to create again and again doubt about what would happen next. It was not doubt about what was happening. I mean, obviously the Egyptians were getting whacked, and 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 they were difficult. It was difficult to be a, a, an Egyptian at that time. But what's next? When is the power that is a, that is accosting us going to run out of steam? That was the that was the question. That was the question, and there was no simple answer to that question. In order to uh, to kind of uh, look into a little bit of something that uh, we should look into, I want to learn two sections of two pieces of Chassidut. One comes the book called Tanya, and the other is uh, is the Lukuti Halachas written by Rav Nosson, you know, the student of Rav Nachman of Braslav. So first the Tanya. The Tanya, you know, was written by the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, right, who is then became called, his name was the name of his book, and he's called Baal Hatanya, which is, uh, means the author of, the owner of, the maker of the book, called Tanya. Tanya is introduction to a brighter, because the first word in the book is Tanya, and very unceremoniously, that's how we gave names to books. It was very little cleverness, right? Breshit is called Breshit because that's the first word. Shvot is called Shmot because it's kind of the first word, right? It's preceded by a participle, but participles don't count. So, uh, uh, 
so this book is called Tanya, and the subject of the book is a little a little bit abstruse. Like you have to you have to make an effort to understand the Tanya, uh, something that most Lubavitcher Hasidim do not do. They just assume it's okay, and they uh, they can go on. You know, I remember in the yeshiva there were these two earnest fellows who came and they said they're willing to come every week and teach a shir in Tanya to the boys, the boys who are interested at no charge you know, that's Chabad they won't charge me for them teaching Tanya, so I said I think it's a great idea, but once you have to teach me a parak of Tanya so for some reason they never returned <laughs> I think that because they have a different idea of teaching. So I want to learn something that the Balatanya says. The book, Tanya, is about, uh, let me put it in a nice way, that, that life could be a spiritual adventure. That's what, that's what he tries to prove, that, or show you. That's what I prove, he's certain of it. But that it's possible, it's possible if you think about this or you think about that, you know, that you could be embarked on a spiritual adventure that includes emunah and closeness to HaKadosh Baruch right? All of that is possible according to the Balatanya. So let's look quickly. Tanya, Likuti Amarim, Perikavtet. If you want to look it up, there is, there, there, uh, there is a, a wonderful English translation of the Tanya, which um, you can get from your local Chabad Shaliach. All you have to do is say to him that you're thinking of intermarrying. And maybe that Tanya will help. You get it right away. Right? They have certain weaknesses you know, I've discerned over the years. But in any event, so the, in chapter 29, it's, it's, it's like a, a dense, it's dense. You know, you have to be prepared, if you want to learn the Tanya, to suffer a bit. It, it doesn't go just like, you know, the classic comics of the Tanakh. You have to you have to work at it. But here, look at what he says. He's continuing a previous idea. He says, this is what what the understanding of Miraglim, of the story of the spies is. Shemitchila Amru ki humimenu. He says he says the the Pasuk says that they reported now that we know that that's true because if you evaluated the situation in Canaan with the situation for the, for the Jews coming out from the desert they were a regular army and the Jews coming out of the desert were just a, you know, a group of people who were not involved in being an army at all but the Gemara says not from them but mimenu from God, chazaku mimenu, that they sort of implied, this is the Gemara says, he's quoting a Gemara, unfortunately in this, this doesn't have all the references, but so, so I'll try to fill them in. Out the Greek mimenu v'chulei, shelota aminu b'yecholet Hashem, that they are stronger even than God. They are stronger because how did they evaluate strength? Not according to the haftacha, but according to the reality. So they said, look, even if God is on your side, you have to have some strength. You have to be able to fight the fight. 
And we can't. We can't fight the fight, and therefore we don't want to go to Eretz Kenan. That's what the Baraglim said according to the Gemara. And later on, you remember, after the story of the Muraglim, and after they were punished, and after they're going to be wandering around the desert for, for 40 years, there is the story about the Mapilim. All of a sudden, they decide they want to go. They realize that they had, they had made a mistake about God's place in this story, and that they understood that God would watch over them and take them through and make them victorious. And so, Vamru, they said, Hinenu va'alinu. Let's go up. Let's do it. We'll go. We'll go to Eretz Canaan in any event. Umein chazara uba meayin. This is the Balatanya says. Meayin chazara balahem emuna biyecholet Hashem. If the reason they said the Baraglim was because they didn't believe that God would help them, could help them, would help them, right to conquer Eretz Canaan. So what happened? What happened after God told them that they would be punished for this lack of devotion? So how did they, how did they then reassess the situation and say, oh, let's go. Let's go to Eretz Kedad and try to capture it. Arei loher alahem, Moshe Rabbeinu, alava shalom, shumot, umo fate, alzeb beira time. Because they were in the conversation they had with Moshe Rabbeinu, there were no signs. There was nothing happened that was different or strange to prove that God was still standing by that promise. The only thing that Moshe Rabbeinu told them was that God was angry at them and will not bring them to the land, will not bring them to Eretz Canaan. So that should have been sort of to fortify their own idea. They said, God is not going to protect us. We're not going to help us. We go to Eretz Kedad. So we're not, and we're not going to be able to beat the, the natives. What was the purpose of them going up? Right? They says, if, if they didn't believe that God would help them, uh, that God could do it, so why did they decide in the end to go up? And how were they expected? That's something impossible. 31 in Yoshua, in the book of Yoshua, Perak Yudbet, in Yoshua, there's a list of all of the kings and all the cities that Yoshua conquered, and there are 31 of them. And so here he says, I mean, after all, they knew that there were 31 kings that had to be conquered. And why did they think that they would be able to conquer these 31 kings if they went up? Right? And they didn't want to go to, the, to Eretz Israel because they knew they couldn't win against 31 kings. So he's got a problem. Right? You agree that the Balatanya has presented us with a problem? And that problem is what happened? B'nai Yisrael didn't want to go. Why didn't they want to go? Because they didn't believe that God would protect them. And when the, when the uh, Muraglim came back and said they were strong and they're powerful and they're well organized, etc. So when they said all of that, when they said all of that, they said, yeah, I mean, we're not going to be able to do it because it's us against them. 
And then after Moshe Rabbeinu told them HaKadosh Baruch was unhappy with them, etc., they decided, yes, we're going to go. We're going to go and conquer. So what happened? What happened to Balatai? So how do you explain that reality in the Torah? It's a good question. I think, I think if you learn the parasha, if you learn the parasha of Shlach, I mean, you've got to ask this question. It's got to have some meaning. So here's the Balatanya's answer, right? He says, Ella. You see in the fourth line, uh, 60% of the way across the line, the word is Ella. Ella vadai mipnei Yisrael atzman ma'aminim This is like a, uh, his answer. He says, he says, he understand that in essence, if there's such a thing, whatever that might mean, that if I could strip down B'nai Yisrael, you know, I, I could strip off the layers, all the layers of junk that have accumulated on Am Yisrael, what I get at, when I get to the core of Am Yisrael, or like the genetic uh, uh, makeup of Am Yisrael, what do I find? Emuna. I find Maminim. Be'yicholet Hashem. Ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim is a quote in the Gemara. Raksha sitra achra. You see the Samach Sitra achra, the other side. It's like one of the names for uh, uh, Satan, bad. Right? Sitra achra. I mean, they're all the, uh, a study of the different names that are used by Chazal to describe the evil in the world is also interesting. Sometimes Satan, sometimes Sitra Akra, sometimes Sad Smol. All of these words are used, but it means there's bad. Ha-melubeshet begufam. Ha-melubeshet begufam. No, it somehow kind of attached itself. Levush is clothing. That bad attached itself to what is essentially good. Essentially, they're ma'minim b'day ba'munim. Somehow overwhelmed the essence, which is the soul, the words light, soul, holy, nafsham in their soul, halokit, begasut, ruach, in a very kind of um, a simplistic way, ugevuta, bechutzpah, and so that's the reality. Each of us has a core of emunah, like we're essentially believers, but, uh, but things cover us. We, we, I mean, if you, you translate this into more modernistic uh, lingo, so you say sometimes we're annoyed by science, sometimes we're annoyed by technology, sometimes we're annoyed by poetry, where everything could be annoying to belief, right? Because we live in a world where a lot of achievement is done by people who don't have belief, and that could be annoying. That could be annoying. That's what he's talking about. And therefore, he says, it's the third line, uh, six lines from the bottom, third word, six lines from the bottom. L'chein miyad she'katzav ha'shem im b'kol ra'ash v'roges that, that immediately HaKadosh Baruch got angry with them and called out with a, a great noisy sound voice, anger. I said these words, How long am I going to have to take this 
from those people, the Eidahara, these bad people, Bamidbar so God said, You're gonna die here. You're not gonna die in Eretz Canaan. You're gonna die here, right here, where where you made this terrible terrible decision. Ani Hashem Dibarti, I Hashem have spoken. And believe me, I'm going to do that to all of the, of you, all of the wicked amongst you. And it was true that after 38 years, everybody died who was the age of 20 and over at the time of the at the time of the Baraglim. Huh? Is the the Balatanya? He's got to get out of this, right? He's got to get out of this terrible situation that he is in. Because he doesn't understand how we can continue. So he says, When Bnei Yisrael heard that this was the divine position, so to speak, that this was God, was the message that God was bringing, So they were broken. They were humbled their hearts within them they went into a state of extreme mourning mourning M-O-U-R and somehow because of this extreme reaction the Sitra Achra the bad guys fell away and left the nation of Israel Memshalta v'gavhut v'gasut rucha, and it it, they, it it all disappeared for a moment. V'Yisrael atzmam helma aminim, and Yisrael turned into believers. Believers meaning they believed that God would actually keep the promise, maintain the promise, bring Bnei Yisrael to Eretz Kenan. V'Yisrael atzmam helma aminim. And B'nai Yisrael achieved the status of believers. And every one of us can learn this about Emunah. That when you have doubts, when some doubt creeps into your head, we understand that that all comes to the Sitra Achra alone. Who assumes some control upon your soul? Yisrael but Yisrael themselves, they believe. in the It doesn't have any doubt about emunah. But the Sitra Achra somehow has the right to confuse us with its lies. So, let's just, the, the end is Musa. The end is, it says, applies to us as well. Okay, maybe it applies to us as well. But the Balatanya said pshat in a difficult sugya. And the difficult sugya was sugya of the Baradlin. And the difficulty that he specifically is interested in that after God he gets angry at B'nai Yisrael and says that they will all die in the desert, that they got it together and they went 
they went uh, up to the, uh, you know, they were Mapilim. They ran up the mountain in order to get into Eretz Canaan and fight the fight. Of course, they were pushed back by the Canaanites, the Amorites. They, uh, they were not able to achieve, they were not able to achieve what they wanted to, uh, to achieve. So that uh, the Balatanya says, well, this is understandable if you understand the nature of the human being. The nature of the human being is that we all have a core of emunah. We're all created by God. And created by God means, well, you have a belief, you, you understand whoever created you. And that understanding, that understanding of whoever it was that, that created you is what we call emunah. We call that emunah. That emunah sometimes gets confused because there's a sitra akhra that is allowed to kind of roam around and force us to make decisions and force us to make the right decisions sometimes. So what happened to B'nai Israel is they started out with the wrong decision. They thought that the promise would not be fulfilled. Emunah. And then they were punished. Or God said they would be punished. And then the original emunah came back to them. And so they said, we believe in God so much that we're willing to go up to Canaan even if we're not commanded to do so right now. And even though that act was not accepted as an act of contrition by Kodesh Baruch nevertheless, nevertheless it was done. And it was based on this idea that emunah, emunah is a fight, there's a battle about emunah all the time, and that battle has to do with, uh, with the reality as you see it in the world. Right? There are things that happen that sort of contradict or deny or make emunah difficult, but that's only because we don't express ourselves properly. If we would express ourselves properly, we would see easily that the emunah is, uh, uh, that the emunah is dominant, that the emunah is victorious. Okay, Rav Nossam, we have time? We have time, we'll do it. Rav Nossam, you see Likuti Halachot? I told you Likuti Halachot, I told you several times, it's a book in which Rav Nossam tries to uh, to inject Rav Nachman into the Shulchan Like it seems a little odd, but he did it. He did it. Look what he says. Al Kain. You see the Rav Nachman Likute Alechod, Al Kain Mishir Otzel Liskot Chayim Nitzchiyim. Somebody wants to live forever. Iev Shalom Liskot Kiim Al Yedei Emunah Uchanal. You need you need faith. He says you need Emunah in order to have. Of uh, 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 eternal life, eternal life, olam haba equals olam haba equals gan eden, and all the permutations thereof. Ulemuna zochim al yedei emet bimchinat tzedek kat itchabart beemet. It's a statement in the in the uh, Zohar. You have to connect to truth. I know. I mean, really, we, we could skip. You see where it's underlined? That's where I wanted it, actually. This is the, the continuation, where it's underlined. The dots, the sort of underline of dots in line six. This is Rav Nachman. It's repeated by Rav Nasser. When I say emunah, I'm referring to something that I don't understand. Meaning, 
I can't prove it. I can't actually um, put it out in a mathematical formula. I can't compute it. Right? That's what emuna is. And therefore, he says, Masha mevin bedato, emuna. Anything you understand. Right? You understand about the weather. You understand about literature. You understand about, about uh, uh, nuclear energy. All of that has nothing to do with emunah. That's called understanding. Right? Ain't emunah. Vim kain mehechan yavol emunah. So, of course, if it's not logical, how do you ever get there? How could you get to have faith in something? So he says, mehechan yavol emunah. Ach Hashem yitbarach merachem alamo o meil di Yisrael darchei haemunah. God has mercy on his people and lights up for Yisrael the ways of faith in other words it's an extraordinary thing people come to faith because God enables it because our only weapon the only thing we have is reason. That's what we have. And you can't reason your way into faith. So how do people get to faith? He says it's a blessing. It's a blessing from God. God enables you to have faith. And then uh, he goes on and he says, Emunah im yurtsu. Right? Emet v'emunah im yurtsu. There's still some kind of element of free will. But God sort of opens up a door. He opens up the light. He says, God does not show you the entirety of truth because he wants you uh, to be actively involved, to, to make the choice, to think it out. So what God does is give you certain elements that enable you to be thoughtful about the question. And without those elements, you would never be able to get there, ever. He says, Hashem, <laughs> So he explains. He says there were miracles in Mitzrayim. Miracles open a door because they obviously happened because there's a power that's greater than any power that we know of on earth. So that beginning, that start, enables the Jews to get to Vayaminu Bashemu Moshe Abdo. Right? That's, the door was open. That's what he says. He doesn't talk about each individual makah, but he talks about the idea of makot being irrelevant to the Egyptians. The Egyptians never, never got the hang of it, and they could have been done away with in one fell uh, shot, uh, but they don't. Right? Uh, uh, Again, uh, 
על ידי משה רבינו שגילה אלוקותו, על ידי כל האותות והעובדים הנוראים שעשה משה לעיני כל ישראל. ועל ידי, על ידי 3 The miracles were the door that was opened a little bit. There's a little bit of faith, but that gave you an opportunity to move on and to get faith. Faith in what? He doesn't say, but we, we talked about it. So he says, he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, the way it works is that the light that is produced by the miracles, like a miracle is like, a, I mean, look, it happens today, everybody knows that there are people who see miracles. They really, they really do. I mean, I'm just saying that. It doesn't matter if they do or they don't. Like everybody knows that, you know, after the, after the, the Six-Day War, where was I? I don't know if I was with Miriam or not. At Shar Mandelbaum. Shar Mandelbaum was at Shmuel Anavi, the street Shmuel You went down Shmuel Anavi, you came to a gate. And that gate was the border between Jewish Yerushalayim and Jordanian Yerushalayim. And so when the tanks came into Yerushalayim, they couldn't go to the old city because they were too big and fat, so they went up on Shmuel Anavi. They came on Shmuel Anavi, and you could see the, uh, who ran, who ran to, uh, to, to these tanks. All these elderly ladies from Meisharim who could still move came with pots of chalt. Can you imagine a guy in a tank? He said, what do I want more than anything else in the world? Chalt. That's what they brought them. And they started running up on the tanks. These old ladies, though, could hardly move. But, you know, when, the, when a certain kind of a Jewish woman wants to get somebody to eat, well, he's going to eat. I mean, there's nothing that's going to stop that. So... Uh, So then afterwards, you talk to these women and say, what are you doing? She, they all said it was a miracle. It was a miracle, right? Now, I'm sure but they believed that it was a miracle. And, you know, that's how we are. Sometimes it, you can, there, there are times where you believe that something is miraculous. So that miracle just widened whatever the door in their hearts is to understand that HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises and keeps. And then they were able on their own to achieve a Yamina Vashem Moshe That did not come to them because of the Makot and Mitzrayim. It came because they were able to open their own hearts. They were able to make the decision on their own. And that's what, uh, that's what Rav, Rav, that's what Rav Nosson, that's what Rav Nosson says. 
So you see that, uh, that there are two approaches. I mean, you could say that Rav Nassim is also answering the same question that the Balatanya proposed, right? You know, Balatanya in history is earlier, right? The Balatanya was a Talmud of the... Of don't bear me. Me? What? The history is helpful. The great Magid of Mezritch, who was a Talmud of the Baal, uh, of the Baal Shem Tov, right? The Baal Shem Tov, he was a special person. I'm not, I mean, I'm telling you personal knowledge. I'm just saying he was pretty much on his own. He had a few Talmidim, but he had one major Talmud called the great Magid, the Magid. And the Magid had a whole group of Talmidim, one of which was the Balatanya, and he was sent along uh, with, the other, uh, with the other Talmidim to conquer the world. Everybody got a piece of the world, and they were supposed to conquer. Some of them were quite successful. The Balatanya was ultimately very successful in Belarus and in Russia, where there were, there were a lot of people who became followers of the, of the Balatanya. The Rav Nosen was a Talmud of... The, of Rav Nachman, who lived in Ukraine and who was the son of the grandson of the Balatanya. So the Balat, uh, of, of the of the Baal Shem Tov, I'm sorry, the son of the grandson of the of the or the granddaughter of the of the uh, of the ba, of the yes. <laughs> you could say it all so many times that I could forget saying it. So that the Balatanya, the Tanya is earlier than Rav Nossin's book. But they both were talking about something similar. And it, hap- it happens that somebody sent me, somebody who saw these Mare Mikomot sent me a quote, which is also very interesting from a book called Priha Aretz, of another Talmud of the Magid, Rav Menachem Mendel of Vitevsk. Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk eventually went to Eretz Israel and lived in Tveria. But in his book, which is called Priya Aretz, in the book that collects the things that he said, he said also something, something very similar. So you see that in the early stages of Hasidut, this problem of maintaining faith, of, of keeping it going, is something that, uh, that caught everybody's attention. And the Balatanya was the one who sent, said, essentially, we are genetically, I would say, right? Our genetic makeup comes from Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov, and they were the ones who created faith. Because faith for the Jews was faith in the future, that whatever God had promised will certainly take place, and that's the faith that was at issue. Can you, what happens if things in the world go against or seem to go against the promise? Faith says, faith overcomes the reality and takes you to the next next stage about the promise. So the Balatanya said, essentially, we are people of faith. And even though there's a Sitra Akhra, the faith will will maintain over the Sitra Achra. Rav Nosson said a little bit differently. 
And he said, miracles open the door to making a faith decision. That faith is, after all, Bechirach of Shit, it's free will, it's a free will decision. But we can't make that free will decision properly without a little help. And the little help that we get is a miracle. So the miracles of Yitziat Mitzrayim, while it is true that they did not prove that the, that the haftacha, that the promise of HaKadosh Baruch Hu remained intact, they did not prove that. Nevertheless, lest they opened a little window in your heart which enabled you to choose faith over, over any other option. Have a good show.